Welcome to Theology on Tap. My name is Mike. I am one of the priests at Holy Communion. It is good to be here with you. No, it's an announcement. Um, if you're not already on the Theology on Tap email list, it is over on that table. Um, there's name tags as well. Most of you have them. Um, there's also food the church has provided, uh, beverages available. Looks like most people have that. We get together about once a month. Uh, we've got dates this, week, this month and next month. Um, next month is going to be a joint project between myself and uh, Hannah Shanks, who's our director of operations. Uh, Hannah is the author of a book uh, on motherhood, but Hannah wants to interview me. So more details about that coming out soon. Uh, it may be a Theology on Tap retrospective, uh, but July 11th. But we get together, it's an informal space. We have interesting conversations about faith and life and sometimes politics. Um, I have been hanging out with the good rabbi over there uh, for a few years now, but especially this spring, we did a lot of work in Jeff City. Uh, and you all know of Daniel, probably. He's been in the New York Times and the Washington Post and all sorts of places for his activism. But on the sidelines of all the work that we've been doing around LGBTQ uh, inclusion and fighting back against really nasty anti-trans bills, uh, I've been hearing little snippets about a class that Daniel's been teaching at Eden Seminary about faith and Star Trek. And I'm, I'm not a big Trekkie, my, my husband's more of a Trekkie, uh, but I love the science fiction genre writ large, and when Daniel started talking about that, I went, I really want to hear about that in detail. Uh, and we've already had, last time we had the LGN Tap, we had Katie Urkelins from Promo, come and talk about the state of the legislation. Unfortunately, very little has changed since then. Uh, and so I said, let's talk about Star Trek. Uh, and so I'm really glad Daniel Bogard uh, is one of the rabbis at Central Reform Congregation. He has already been a rabbi in residence, not just for an Episcopal congregation, but for a whole Episcopal diocese uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, we knew people in common in the Episcopal and Jewish world before we knew each other. Uh, which tells me that Daniel is really good people because I hang out with good people and he hangs out with good people. Uh, so I you... hang out with sketchy people, yeah, actually. Okay. So well, now the cards are on the table. I, but I know Leslie. Yes. I mean, so do I. Um, but if you would help me ra welcome Rabbi Daniel Bogard. I'm like so lost. Can I take my gnashes with me while I yeah. talk? Is it... Um, well, thank you. Uh, so, like Mike said, I spent all semester teaching a class on Star Trek and faith. I think we called it um, Star Trek Myth and Meth Messianism uh, at Eden Seminary to Future Christian uh, Messianism. Uh, to Future Christian Clergy. And I actually, I told Eden, they went, I'm teaching a real class again next semester, because I teach real classes there too, uh, that I want business cards that say, uh, a professor of Jewish thought and Star Trek. So um, <laughs> I've said it enough, I'm hoping someone gets the hint that this is not a joke. Um, anyhow, really excited for this. I'm gonna talk less about Star Trek in particular and more about this class as a whole and some of the big learnings that I took from it that I hope these students took from it uh, we were like blowing up minds every week in this class. So this really came about because when I was originally interviewing at Dean Seminary to uh, teach a like serious 
Jewish studies kind of class there. I was meeting with the dean and somehow Star Trek came up and we were supposed to talk for an hour and we had spent five minutes talking about the class and we spent the next 55 minutes talking about Star Trek. And one of the things that I had said was, you know, when I was a child, I wanted to be Captain Picard when I grew up. I still kind of feel that way. Um, but I actually, I, there's a very real sense in which the stories of Star Trek are core stories for me. They're the stories that tell me who I am and how I'm supposed to live in the world and where I came from. And so writ large, we use this word myth. And usually when we talk about myth, what do we mean by it? It's a story that's not true, right? It's, oh, that's just a myth. Okay. But in a technical sense, a myth is any story that tells us who we are, where we came from, and how we are supposed to live in the world. Myth has nothing to do with truth, historical truth, or untruth. Myth has to do with how we use it. So I think back to Jews who would have lived in the shtetl, surrounded entirely by Jews, with every story that they would have grown up hearing being some variation on a Jewish story involving Bible stories or stories of rabbis or in every song that they would have known as a child and as a teenager would have been Jewish songs. In every book and educational opportunity they would have had access to was Jewish, right? And there were clearly Christian equivalents of all of these sorts of things. Which is to say that for those Jews, their whole mythological world, the whole story that they told themselves about who they were was Jewish. That's not true of any of us anymore. I mean, not just the Jewish part, right? Because you're Episcopalians. Uh, but it's not true because we have so many different pieces of who we are and so many different bodies of mythology that make that up. Does that make sense, what I just said? So in a very real way, there are huge chunks of who I am that were formed by Star Trek that in previous generations might have been formed by Jewish stuff or biblical stuff or what, whatever it is. And I think that's probably true for all of us in all the different ways. Does this make sense? Any thoughts on this as we go? But Okay. So what we wanted to do with the students was we wanted to take a whole bunch of theologians. We wanted to take a whole bunch of seminarians who are obviously quite into Christianity. That's one of the things that tends to go along with people <laughs> who go to seminaries, right? Um, exactly. Uh, and they're so into it that they can't see that they also are existing within a mythological universe. And the magic of doing a class on Star Trek was they can see that Star Trek is a mythological universe. Star Trek has its own rules inside of its universe, right? There's, there's Kalis, but as far as I can tell, there is no Jesus in Star Trek, right? They, there are various alien species that have their own histories, and the, I, I assigned students to write a uh, term paper on Bajoran religion this year. Bajoran religion from Deep Space Nine. And what would happen, in fact, there was this magical moment where one of the students was telling some story, and I looked at them and I said, I'm really sorry, I just, I need you to tell me, is this a Christian story or is this a Star Trek episode that you're talking about? Because I don't know like a lot of the Christian stories, right? I know the Star Trek episodes pretty well though. Um, and it was this magical moment for everyone in the room because all of a sudden we realized that we were jumping between bodies of mythology, universes of thought that each had their own rules. And once you can jump between them, 
you don't look at your own universe in quite the same way anymore. Does that make sense? So the biggest theme that we kept coming back to over and over again was that of postmodernism. So I'm going to give you my definition of postmodernism. Someone else will give you a different definition that'll be totally different. Um, okay, we've got so Spaceship Mike over here and Spaceship Leslie over there, right? We'll come back to that in a minute. But the question of postmodernism that we're going to ask, premodernism, modernism, and postmodernism, is where does truth come from? Premodern worldview says truth comes from the past. There was a moment of revelation. There was a moment when it was given in the past. There was a moment when things were better and everything has been downhill from there. That's the moment of Jesus coming. That's the moment of Moses getting the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's the moment of revelation to Muhammad. It's also the wisdom you get from your grandparents. Eh, no, that's how it's done. That's how it, right? Uh, it's, by the way, as we're talking about these worldviews, pre-modern, modern, and post-modern, all of us live in all of these worldviews. None of us, it, it's not, you don't pick one. So that's a pre-modern perspective on where truth came from. Does that make sense? Yeah? We all get that, that idea that it came from the past, a moment of revelation, and therefore, everything that we have now is inferior to what came in the past. Pre-modern view on truth. That's where truth came from. And we can all see this in religious spheres too, right? Modernity emerges really with the enlightenment, with this idea that we can discover the truth. We can use the best tools of science to wipe away the misinformation until finally we have the answer sitting right there. Make sense? Okay, now back to our spaceship Mike and spaceship Leslie over here. Okay, you are sitting in space on spaceship Mike and you look out the window and you see zooming across your view screen spaceship Leslie. Who is moving? Because of course you're on Spaceship Leslie and you look out your window and Spaceship Mike is going in the opposite direction, right? And what Einstein proves is that it's all relative. Every piece of information we know is like that, where it's all relative to where you're standing, which is to say that we are incapable of holding any absolute truth. That's a revolutionary concept for a lot of students in a seminary, right? But when you can get them to jump into the Star Trek world, they can see it in a way that they can't see it when they're thinking within the Christian world. Okay, that was learning number one. Any thoughts on that before we keep going? They get to do that at their tables in a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, you get to do the questions. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay. Um, my mind just went blank on the, yeah, yeah, no, I remember the number, it's the, yeah. Uh, uh, Postmodernism, learning number two was, uh, um, I'll go to number three and two will come back to me. Number three was discussions of how we order the canon. So understand, what'd you say? Order the canon. What, what, how you watch it, right? So you should understand, first of all, that mine was the only interfaith dialogue class at Eden Seminary this semester, which means regardless of how much someone likes Star Trek, if they needed an interfaith credit in order to graduate from Eden Seminary, they were in my Star Trek class. So we had about half these students who had never seen Star Trek before. 
So here's the question. What order, we were actually just talking about this. What order do you watch the episodes in if you are coming to Star Trek right now? See, we have opinions on this. I just, that was rhetorical, but we're getting answers. I just did it, and I did it in chronological order by how they were made. Great. But I do, but I, well, yeah, how they, how they were aired. Okay. Um, now, I did not, I did not overlap. Um, I did finish Deep Six Nine before I started Voyager. So, because Got it. you know that there is overlap. There's some overlap there, there and TNG DS9, yep. Okay. Um, I would not do that again. I would like to actually start and reverse it and go in chronological order based on internal chronology. Yeah. yeah. So right, those are the two options basically that you have. Do we follow the order that they came out production schedule essentially? Right. And, and from that from that perspective, by the way, you watch an original series episode and then you watch an episode that just came out and you can feel that you're dealing with 1960s and 2020, right? You can feel that very, and not just in the technology and not just in the, you know, the special effects. It's also what they say, how they say the cultural context, the acid trips they were on in the original series when they were writing it, right? Like all these Trouble things. Trouble with Tribbles. Trouble with Tribbles, yeah. Um, so that's the same difference between the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Do you all know this? So the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, essentially goes in the order of production. It's divided into three major groups. Uh, Torah, which are the first five books of Moses, which are probably the first of the books in the Bible to be composed as we have them. Prophets, maybe some of the prophets are a little older, but anyhow, prophets. And then random extra stuff at the end. Kituvim, we call it the writings, but it's really, it's got Psalms and Proverbs and Daniel and Esther and all the other random late stuff. Uh, so the Jewish Bible is ordered like you watched. But the Christian Old Testament reorders these books to create an internal chronology. You start with Strange New Worlds, then you go to the original series, then you, right? Um, and so these were some of the games, by the way, I remember, had it a second ago, and then it was gone, number two. Ah. So we used this to talk about cultural context with the students. We had them watch uh, an episode from Enterprise. We had them watch, which is the most bro-ish of the Star Treks, and if you're going to skip one, skip that one for sure, an episode from the original series and an episode uh, from one of the modern Trek shows. And we had them watch them in internal chronological order. So they were, you know, watching like the new one and then the original series. And it was messing with people's brains. It was really messing with people's brains, which is the thread that we follow. And what it helps people to see is that you're telling a different story when you follow each of those different threads. When you tell it in chronological order of production, you're telling the story of the people in the contexts that made these documents. The Jewish Bible is ordered to prioritize that. When you tell a story in its internal chronology, right? I said Strange New Worlds, but really Enterprise should go first, I guess. Uh, 
with all its broishness as I can. It's it's George W. Bush era Star Trek is what Enterprise is. Um, right, but again, actually that's my point, right? Then you're telling the, the story of, of the people who made it. Uh, but the Christian Bible tells the Jewish story in a very different way. It creates a narrative that goes through time and points in a very particular ideological direction. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, I remembered number two. So, one of the really wild things, uh, I'll go there in a second. Star Trek, any Star Wars people here? I'm not a Star Wars person, so I'm like looking badly at all of you, just to be clear here, it's really, um, Star Wars and Star Trek very different, by the way. Uh, it's very purposeful that this was not a sci-fi class, it was a Star Trek class, by the way, because Star Trek, unlike many of the other ones, is progressive, utopian, messianic fiction. That's what Star Trek is. It's a vision of the way that the world could become if only we make it so. It's a, it's a messianic uh, show in many ways. Uh, but you know how Star Trek and Star Wars do not exist in the same mythological universe, right? You couldn't have, except for like, of course, there's probably like that one comic out there that had a breakthrough between the two universes where Luke Skywalker shows up on the Enterprise. I'm sure there's a comic out there, right? Here's the thing. Joseph's story in the Bible is that comic for the Bible. The book of Genesis is primarily the stories of those Judeans who live in the desert in the south of Israel, who were nomads and lived a nomadic life and were primarily saw their other, not as some foreign adversary, but those people who lived in the north and were agricultural and settled. By the way, ranchers and farmers never get along anywhere, anytime. Right? And that's what we're dealing with here, ranchers and farmers, essentially. And so these Southerners have all of these stories about Bedouin-type folks who travel around, which is to say they have the stories of Abraham and Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah and Isaac and Jacob. Those are the stories of the South. And if you look at it, what is the promise? The promise is that they're going to live happily ever after in the land, flowing with milk and honey, which is to say wealthy, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach. Land, progeny, and wealth are the promises that Abraham gets, and that's how the book of Gen Genesis is supposed to end. We get so used to the narrative of the story that we miss that that is how it's supposed to end. Totally separate from that is this whole series of stories that these northerners have that are about Exodus and Moses and having come from the south, by the way. Right? That's the story of coming from the great southern empire and making their way in a slave rebellion, as opposed to the Genesis stories were about coming from the great northern empire and being led by your God. And these worlds don't live together. The Moses and Exodus worlds are the Star Trek worlds to the Star Wars of the Genesis stories. Joseph is that comic book. It's the bridge that takes these two disparate bodies of mythology these universes that don't sit in the same world and places them into a context and into a universe that they can all sit comfortably. So if we had taught that on the first day of seminary on its own, we would have gotten a lot of pushback and defensiveness from a lot of these students, even at Eden Seminary, which is a pretty progressive place. But instead what we do is we talk Star Trek and we talk Star Wars. And once you can see the ideas in those worlds, you don't have the defensive reaction 
I mean, particularly if you like Star Wars, which is awful, right? Like, you don't have that. Uh, I mean, no, Star Wars isn't awful. You're just like awful people. Well, never mind. It's, um, no, right? But for whatever else, we don't have that same defensive reaction usually to these stories as we do with our, our own faith stories. And what we can do is we can take those learnings and bring them back. Uh, which is to say that really what we did was a religious studies class on Star Trek, uh, where we got people to think about religion, including and in particular their own faith, in a different way by jumping out of their universe and into a different one. Friends, sorry, Alex. That's okay. You want to finish your point? Yeah, finish your point. Uh, all right. No, 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 finish your point. Yeah. Oh, because there are all these different worlds here going through, it presents this almost like a laboratory for the cultural and moral. It sounds like we got to very similar places. Um, I'm going to do open questions with Daniel, but I'm going to start with mine. Which is, I'm glad I have a rabbi here, because this is like a rabbi question, right? So the thing that always bothered me from the first time I watched Star Trek were the transporters. Because essentially, because you're dead, and then it's a you new you. You commit yeah. murder, uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. and then they get reassembled. Yeah, um, and I, it always bothered me, and it always bothered me on a theological level because does your soul go when you get turned into binary code and then reassembled? That's that's the first part of the question. But then, it just, it, I'm a I'm, I'm a fan of um, this show called Love It or Leave It with this guy John Lovett who used to be a writer for Barack yeah. Obama. And he was interviewing somebody from Star Trek, and he's like, would you feel the same way about it if they like took your consciousness and then reassembled a body, but then you had to kill the living body and like dispose of it on the, on the starship? Um, which I thought was like a really good way of me feeling like, yeah, that's the thing. You're murdering yeah, people. Do you, do you have to make them disintegrate to make another copy appear at the other end? Is... Yeah, exactly. So this is my question uh-huh. to you. like. What does the transporter, like, what are the, how do you make a kosher transporter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's see, who has seen Picard season three, too? We, we get some of that in season three. Oh, really? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I'm so excited. It's so good. Oh, my God, it's so good. Yeah, okay, so that's the real reason why I watched it from, from the beginning to the end. Because I wanted to see the most committed Star Trek fan ever. I knew that I needed to see Next Generation, but I also knew that I wouldn't get other content. Oh, we did ones. this, so, yeah. Uh-huh. And I'm so glad I did, because I wouldn't have gotten Seven of Nine reference if I had Oh, my God. Which, I know. So, Jerry Ryan follows me on Twitter, and it's like my single greatest claim to fame. That the, the captain of the Enterprise follows me on Twitter was like my dream come true, right? <laughs> By the way, the captain Wait, of the Enterprise. Jerry Ryan, the captain? you got to watch uh, the season three end. Okay. Sorry, I gave it away. But canonically... Spoiler. That means the captain of the Enterprise is a queer woman in Star Trek. Um, yeah, right? Like, it's wild. It's awesome. Uh, so yeah, we, I don't know. I'm horrified, but I have no answers. Okay, yeah, you're horrified. I, I, I'm not letting my children take the transporter. It's a strict okay. policy in our house. We don't. So that would be not on Chavez. McCoy. McCoy agreed with Doesn't you. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. There we go. I'm glad that. But what questions do you have for Daniel? <laughs> so the rabbi has ruled transporter, not kosher. Just they transport you from here to the and you disappear into nothing. Beam me up. Beam me up, Scotty. Yeah, disintegrate in one area and reappear in another area. 
But it's a whole different set of molecules. So are you the same person or are you dead and now a new person? Has your soul gone And in with fact, you? there's all these episodes where something goes wrong and they end up with two copies of someone. There are two Rikers. Yeah, up to okay. Boimler's. Go, show it. So I think the greatest thing in Star Trek is the fact that you can just take molecules out of the air and make food, yeah. which would free us from all of the Michigas that we have to deal with right now. Well, that's, that's the way in which Star Trek is a messianic fantasy of the future, mm. right? It is, what do they call Luxury, communist, there's a phrase. Deep space luxury communism. There you go. What is it? Deep space luxury. At least in the recent series. Gay space luxury communism. Space luxury communism, perhaps prior to the new Star Trek. And then new Star Trek is quite queer, if you haven't seen it. I, All I of actually, Star Trek is quite queer. New Star Trek is honest about it. <laughs> but I don't... I don't think you will find a show that is more woke than Star Trek Discovery, actually. Mm. Woke than Star Star Trek Discovery routinely has entire episodes where there isn't a straight white man who shows up other than like as a passing figure in a hallway. Um, has numbers of gay and trans and non-binary crew, core crew members and majority of the 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 folks are people of color, and I mean, it's Discovery is quite hip. Yeah. Interestingly, As, uh, Scott McFarlane's sort of parody, The Orville, yeah, yeah. picks up on that and has the like the Klingon characters as the gay ones. Which yeah, is yeah. The Orville is is part of Trek. Also, the other like almost Trek one that I think is the best TV show. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about, other than it's the best TV show of the last decade. Is For All Mankind. Hmm. Has anyone seen this? No. Where? How do you find it? Oh, it's. <laughs> Yeah, Apple TV, it's made by, uh, um, what's his name, who did Deep Space Nine and Battlestar Galactica. Um, not Rick Berman, who's creepy. Um, someone Google this, we have phones. Yeah, it's set in a slightly alternative universe where the Russians beat us to the moon by two weeks. And the first season is set in the 60s and it's a period piece. Second season's in the 80s, third season's in the 90s, but it's, it's the best television, sh like I would compare it to The Wire and to The West Wing. Those are the shows. Uh -huh. But in many ways, it exists in the Star Trek universe. I um, mean, it's made by Star Trek writers. And uh, did we find out his name? Uh, Ronald Moore. Yeah. There we go. Ronald Moore, who was the mind behind Deep Space Nine and the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, which was great. It was a Bush era allegory if, if people didn't see it. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm going to push this back into theological religious yeah, space a little bit. No, 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 sorry, it's, it's all good. Uh, but messianism or messianism, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, is a very particular framework that when you're speaking in Christian spaces, gets this, like, yeah. it, it, we, we use it very differently, right? Um, so yeah. could define messianism. Yeah, so we did, uh, that was the, the first half of our semester we focused on messianism and we set it up that I had them watch the first few episodes of Picard season one and talk about messianism. And they all wrote all about the Jesus illusions, allegories, etc. that they saw. And I wrote back to all of them, I said, no, 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 I didn't say Jesus, I said messianism. Mm -hmm. Which was kind of the whole point, right? It was to get them to see that their mythological universe was just a mythological universe dealing with these same kinds of impulses. Messianism 
is the belief and hope that there will be divine intervention to make the world the place that it should be. Messianism, Jewishly, has always been about the restoration of the political order to the way that it could have been. But Jewishly, there's not the Messiah. You can be a Messiah, in fact. Uh, um, Judah Maccabee is referred to in the Book of Maccabees as a Messiah, Yehudah Mashiach, uh, meaning that he led to a restoration of the political order as it should have been, and it lasted for a while, and then the political order fell apart, and there may need to be another messianic figure. But messianism as an impulse, the hope that there will be someone who will rise up in an impossible situation, we find across cultures, across contexts, across mythological bodies, uh, right? This, this sense, and it always comes during your darkest moments. You don't get messianism during moments of plenty and surplus and abundance, right? You get messianism at moments when hope feels lost, uh, right? You, you see Jewish upticks in messianism and mysticism after the Spanish Inquisition. You see upticks in Jewish messianism during the Holocaust. You see, right, like, it, it makes sense when you think about it. And so what we see in Star Trek actually I don't think you get much messianism within the world of Star Trek. But Star Trek, writ large, when you step back, is a messianic vision of the future. It's the way that the future could yet be, right? Like, and I, in fact, I gave my High Holy Day sermon this last year, and I started by talking about being a Trekkie, and I said that like, the most painful break in my whole life is that I no longer believe that I am a part of the project that is building Star Trek's future. Hmm. And I, right, I, I don't actually mean that jokingly at all. That is maybe the most painful internal mythological break that I have is that the way that I always understood myself, this is what I meant when I said I grew up wanting to be Captain Picard, right? Was that somehow in a little way, we are working towards that place, right? I'm seeing all the Star Trek fans are nodding, right? That's, that's why people love Star Trek, is, is that sense. And I no longer believe it, um, right? That's the death of my personal sense of hope. That's the, the other topic you could have invited me to speak about. The death One of, the of other my topic. personal sense of hope. Uh, right, no, I mean, you go to Jeff City enough and you will stop having hope in your life also. Mm. I wish that was a joke. It is really not. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's messianism, and, and so, you know, you can't understand, we talked about this at our table, you can't understand Picard. I don't mean the character of Jean-Luc Picard, I mean the, the series of Star Trek Picard, which came out in 2019, 18, the first season, something like that. Um, you can't understand Picard without understanding the agony of liberals during the Trump era. Picard, no, right? Yeah. Picard is as much a response to the Trump era yes. as the West Wing was to the W it's era. The Federation, which has always been the best. Collapse. Fairness, Look at season three of, or season three of Discovery is the same way. And, and right, like that, that is the central challenge of modern Star Trek is what do you do when the people who are watching no longer believe that humans are capable of doing this? Hmm. Uh, and that's messianism. But that holds it to you. And the, the title of, in Discovery, you mentioned Discovery Season 
three. There you go, right? That is the overarching thing in Discovery Season 3 is that the, the crew of the Discovery have to be the hope. They have to be the standard bearer to bring the Federation back together yeah. after this fall. There you go. Because like, like, I'm watching the new track now, and I've noticed that's kind of an overarching theme. In new track is what does it mean to aim for Starfleet? What does it mean yes. to Starfleet? What is our goal? What are the ideals we strive for? And how do we strive for them in the darkest times? Yep. And like DS9 did this a little bit like how do we live to our ideals when, uh, when we're faced with the reality of war? What, what is the cost of our ideals? But New Track is much more just like what are our ideals and how do we strive for them in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, nice. Nice. That's uh, go ahead. I was just going to say a side note that isn't really what we're talking about, but was certainly a part of the class, was the other thing about Star Trek is that it's pretty Jewish. The writers of Star Trek have always been, some might say this about Hollywood in general, but that sounds a little anti-Semitic, uh, overwhelmingly Jewish, but particularly New Trek. New Trek, you look at the the title screen go by and it's the Akivas and the, I mean, it's like really Jewish names that are going by. Um, and I think actually what you're talking about there is, ex that's a Jewish idea. That's like a core Jewish idea. We talked about, what was the name of that episode? Far Beyond the Stars. Far Beyond the Stars, which is set in the 1950s. Which show is this? Which Deep Space Nine. Okay. Often considered one of the great episodes. That, oh, uh, yeah. They go back in time, and all the characters get to, all the actors get to play totally different characters yeah. set in the 1950s, and they all clearly have a lot of fun with it. But there's a scene, a number of scenes set in a black diner. And one of the remarkable, th right, this is a show that it's 1995 or something. They are able to fill a room at a black diner with black main actors from their show. What other show that wasn't an African-American targeted show in the 1990s? I could say that it's remarkable. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna give you a second, sorry. So there's a thought out there, and I'm, I'm not sourcing it, but I'll, if you push me, email me, I'll get you the source eventually. But there's an idea out there that the way that we deal with mythopoiesis has shifted. Hold on, what is that word? Mythopoiesis, like mythopoetic reality. So the, the mythopoiesis is the idea uh, that we live in a mythological system. Okay. Right? So, um, but that you can actually see it in the way that we tell stories. And so for, you know, centuries, there were stories about wizards and leprechauns and, and magic was the reality, the, the way that we talked about like phenomena we didn't understand. And there's a big shift really at the turn of the 20th century into what they call ufology, 
that ufology, UFOlogy, but this idea that like suddenly you have aliens and uh, alien technology, and yeah. so a lot of the phenomena that used to be accredited to leprechauns and wizards and things like that, magic and witches, is now you know space aliens and alien invaders and UFOs and. And that, and that it's it's just a different way of, and as our world got more technological, that's how people understood things well, they couldn't the, understand. It's also the pre-modern of these are the things that happened back then versus these are the things that happen out there. Exactly. It, you, get a, you get a little bit of that. But part of what I find interesting in that, when you get to Star Trek, is like for a Christian, if you say, what is the Messiah in Star Trek, one of the answers is technology. Right, like technology has made so many things. Simple. The replicator. This was the unlimited yeah, the thing. replicator yeah. piece. But so, what? What do you? It's a magical place you go to, and you say what you want to eat, and it just makes it for you. What do you make of Star Trek's decision, and and has the the role of technology shifted? Because we see. I mean, like particularly the conversations today around AI and is AI eventually going to just launch all the nukes? Um, but like, is there a conversation between the dystopian um, technology worlds that are so often part of sci-fi these days and Star Trek? And what does that say about our sense of the divine, of God, of the mythopoiesis in which we, as people of faith, interpret the world? I mean, I've become a dystopian optimist. Yeah, Like, okay. on my optimistic days, I think this is all a simulation. It's on the other days that I'm depressed. Um, do you know simulation theory? Who, who does not know simulation theory? I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to explode you for a moment. Uh, a whole bunch of people, including, like, big scientists, believe this to be true. Simulation theory has all sorts of variations, but it basically goes something like this. We use our biggest, best supercomputers to model the beginnings of the universe. Right? And so every 18 months, it's called Moore's Law. It's been consistent in the transistor age. Basically, the power of what? Moore's Law. Moore's Law. He was the founder of Intel. Okay. Every 18 months, the power of computers basically double at the same price point is, is essentially what, what Moore's Law looks like. Uh, it's more technical than that, but whatever. Uh, what that means is we're not far off, 50 years, 70 years, whatever, from being able to model entire civilizations like subatomic particle by subatomic particle. We build in the rules. We can take it from the Big Bang in this simulation to literally us sitting at a table, right? 70 years, 100, whatever it is. We're not, we're not far from that point where our computer modeling will be able to do that if Moore's Law continues at the rate that it has, by the way, continued at very, very consistently, which is to say that are the odds better that you're in the one real universe or that actually we are all living inside of a computer simulation of a universe where that civilization likely developed to the technological point where the simulated universe develops computers that are strong enough to simulate universes. So we're probably not even in the first simulated universe. We're probably like all the way down in simulated universes. It's turtles all the way down. Yeah, by the way, scientists look at this and they say, about 50-50 probably, that we're in a simulated universe versus a legitimate, real scientists say 50-50, yeah. Um, but when, you, when we get computers that are able to simulate civilizations, it goes to 99.9 .9 that we are in a simulated universe. 
Um, so that's simulation theory. So that's when I'm feeling optimistic. I'm like, hey, maybe it'll all reboot. Um, uh, no. Uh, so I, I totally lost your real question here. No, it but was, does, Star Trek, does Star Trek have a, a, a particular voice in these questions about the role of technology in saving humanity? I don't think technology ever saves people in Star Trek. Hmm. It's always human ingenuity. And it's not just human ingenuity. It's different people from different places getting along and working together on a project. That, that is Star Trek, right? Like, there's nothing more Star Trek than a group of diverse people coming together to solve problems. If Can we I could all, all be like Star Trek, Starfleet officers. Yeah, exactly. It's not human, exactly. Because there's that one blob voiced by Norm MacDonald in the. Oh, there you go. The, yeah. Or. So, like, yeah, like, so Klingons and, 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 Klingons and, and other, other, other humanoid, other sentient beings, beings, not just humans. Kirk always tells Spock, you know, that's, you're almost like a human, and Spock always says, that's offensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the word that has not come up that surprises me so far is, give me a theology of the Borg. <laughs> the Borg. That's corporate America. White evangelicalism. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that, look, in our class, that's certainly how we talked about it. So the Borg is this group, it's half computerized people, cyborg people, who want to come and turn everyone else and all other civilizations into part of their cybernetic network. And every being is a part of this network and is no longer an independent living. That's interesting. You see evangelicalism and I see corporat corporatization. All of it, yeah. Yeah. But certainly at Eden Seminary, the students very much saw white evangelicalism. Uh, they saw our Missouri legislature. Yeah. Yeah. I am troubled by the Ferengi. I've been dying. Uh, I had a I had a two two class two week uh, uh, arc on the Ferengi with the students. The Ferengi are sort of an exaggeration of Jews from Nazi cartoons, and they care about commerce and nothing else. So Ferengi is, uh, by the way, Arabic as well as many subcontinental languages is the word for like gringo. It's probably the closest word we all would know. For what? 
Gringo. It's Goy. It's the uh, foreigner, colonialist kind of. It has all of those qualities. White person is sort of a part of it too, built in. Again, like it's very similar to Goy, Gringo, these sorts of concepts. And that's Ferengi in all these languages, which is where they get it from. What's interesting is almost all of the Ferengi, main Ferengi actors are Jews. And most of the writers writing these things are Jews. Uh, so it's this really, I mean, you get, first of all, you get next generation Ferengi, which are basically just a walking anti-Semitic stereotype. That's mm -hmm. all that they are. Uh, but then you get into Deep Space Nine and like, I don't know, I think Quark's all heart. Um, but yeah, it's this, right? Like there's all sorts of interesting conversations I think to be had about the ways that we internalize bigotry about ourselves and then put it out into the world. And yeah, right, like it's, it's real what you're saying. And there have been numerous critiques of the Ferengi as anti-Semitic uh, caricatures. Yeah. There's academic work on this, in fact. I, yeah. the, things, the things you discover when you teach a semester-long class about Star Trek. Um, what else? Other Um, it was wild converting people to Star Trekism. Because like <laughs> half of these people had not watched Star Trek. Like couldn't tell you Star Trek from Star Wars. And a whole bunch of them really left as believers. As my former Catholic yeah. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, I mentioned it at this table, but the, the other one that I really enjoyed was uh, for their midterm project, they had to watch Prodigy. Has anyone watched Prodigy? Mm -hmm. So Prodigy is the new, brand new children's cartoon. First children's cartoon Star Trek has had. Teenage. Prodigy. Prodigy, not Lower Decks. They're still teenagers. Yeah? Yeah, it's still adolescent. It's Nick Jr., but it's, but it's, Interesting. it's more adolescent. Um, so I had them watch the first half of that series and then write about indoctrination and youth church. Wow. That half of them got it and half of them didn't get it at all. Um, yeah, right, like how do you introduce a mythological universe to another generation? And it's always indoctrination. It's what we're all doing. Whether we see it and acknowledge it, and right, we don't like that word. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that is one where I, you know, one of the ways that every time I, well, for a long time when we did it in person, I think I've done it in person since the pandemic, but one of the ways I talk about the way that we teach scripture is to take people into our godly playroom. Because the way that we do is like, we really just tell stories. Yeah, well, this is like, you know, postmodern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, I but you're think, still indoctrinating when you're doing it postmodern. You're just letting them know you're indoctrinating them. Yeah, well, that's, that's, it's that's, just that's like an awareness difference. of what's happening. Well, yeah. it's, it's a little different to say you're indoctrinating and telling them this is what the story means as opposed to like, here is the story that has been told. But that, I wonder, you know. But that's an indoctrination into postmodernism too, right? Like True. even if it's not an indoctrination into traditional Christianity, it's True. a different worldview that we're um, True. forcing onto our children. 
See, and yeah, here you go. It's turtles there's, there's all lot, the way down. It's turtles all the way down. But but I do think there is a there's a way in which like to be aware to do you know like all the social scientists and the way they do the self implication. Yeah. At, at the beginning of their essays, right? Um, there's a there's a piece of that that it. What do we mean by what's the difference between proselytizing and indoctrination? And gentler words for saying like sharing worldview and knowing story and like there's there is a there's a degrees question there that, that sure I do the good ones and they do the bad ones. Well, it's yeah. the... <laughs> no, that's you. No, oh, sorry. sorry. Um, And I was being uh, intentionally a pain in the tuchus when I like used the word indoctrination for their midterm, and it was all over their midterm, and all sorts of them reacted to that. But it's also right, like, and I was also joking around. Yeah. But it was also exactly true that that's indoctrination too, right? Like, I am absolutely indoctrinating my children into a worldview that views gender as a spectrum. I'm indoctrinating into a worldview of pluralism and of like. Vulcans and no, right? Like it's all indoctrination. Yeah. But but and it's not like again, it's an intentionally provocative. It it is and it's not, but it, it it's also like it's disheartening to hear that question about like I no longer believe we're living in the world that gets the Star Trek. Yeah. Right. Like be, because that is to say that your your fundamental myth broke. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel. See, I just want to pause. Do you hear how she's quoting this like we quote Corinthians or something? Yeah. Right? Like, this is what happened in class. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I can't remember which movie it is, but I can The Star Trek, the first generation movie. Next generation movie. Next generation. Oh, first contact, yeah. Yes. And he's like, and he's like, whatever, I'm gonna go get a drink. And they're like, no, you gotta get in the ship. Like, there is that just, it was, it was all out war right before that. World War III had literally just happened. I mean, it was right, this dark. Is, this is faith that you're talking was, about now. It was, yep. it was, and it was the darkest of days. And it was the, I mean, they were living in, Everybody is able to feed themselves enough, and everybody is physically fit and doing what they're supposed to be doing and living the good life, and nobody is harming each other, and there is literally peace on earth yeah. for the first time since it was. And that's the messianic moment, by the way. The Vulcans arrive, and that's the Messiah. Well, and, and I mean, but the messianic moment didn't happen. 
oh wait, maybe there is something more and maybe we're not as shitty as we thought we were and you know, then we hope on hope. I, I have another Barack out there. Three, three, three years in a row I've written my High Holy Day sermon about hope and three years in a row I have trashed it because it is the most depressing thing that no one should ever have to encounter. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, like, I get that this is really personal. Uh, I don't think you can go to Jeff City as many times as I've gone to Jeff City and still have hope. No, I, like, I get that that's funny, but I, I don't no, actually mean that it is a joke. It's like Jeff City has killed my sense of hope in the future. Uh, yeah. Come to Jeff City with me next year, and you too can see your hope destroyed. It's really It's the toll, the personal, the, inner, the, the personal, spiritual, emotional toll is real. Yeah. Hmm. Just get out of here. Just like leave. <laughs> like, what you, next you're going to say you're a Cubs fan. What's going on? It's, yeah, yeah. By the way, I want to be clear that if you all walk away here deciding you're going to go watch Star Trek for the first time, I will count this as a success story in my ministry. It's really. He's an evangelist for Star Trek. Yeah. I vote for it. It's yeah. You're like, in the air, and who cares if it's a simulation or not? Well, maybe. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we can just all, like, YOLO sort of simpler. Like, who cares about anything, right? Because, like, it doesn't seem to matter. And we could compare mythology and be like, well, this mythology, like, seems to promote more, like, good for humanity than this mythology. Um, but it all kind of seems kind of superficial, like, what are we doing? So, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna pull you together and I'm gonna twist the question just a little bit. That was a great op-ed. It's like, a great turn op-ed. That, turn that into something you write and publish. That was great. But I'm I'm gonna twist it just a little bit because while I have been there in Jeff City with you and watched like how it grates on anybody's soul. Um, I want to twist it and ask the question of like, what do you hold on to? What do you hope? Because I've also been around you talking about a particular source of hope, and I want to give you a chance to shill for Indigo Point too. <laughs> so talk about talk about hope and talk about camp, Indigo Point. Um, okay, I'm gonna back up. I'm gonna tell a myth first. Yeah. And this is one Jews call a myth, and it's a Jewish myth. Um, it's called the Lurianic myth. It says before there was anything, there was just God, and all was God and there was nothing but God. And so there was no space and there was no absence of space. There was just God. And God decided that there needed to be space for that which was not God. So God contracted God's self. God's pronouns, by the way, are God. <laughs> and so God contracted God's self. And all of a sudden, there was space where there was not God. But the question arose, what is to be done with that part of God which had been in the space which is now not God. And so there were these vessels that were formed by God to hold the divine overflow, this extra space that, that had filled the, the area where there is now not God. And these vessels could not hold the holiness and the essence of the divine because nothing could. And so they broke and they cracked and they shattered and they spread out throughout the world. And it's for this reason that humans were created. Because the divine essence, if you imagine clay pots filled with oil, those broken shards of clay, even as they are broken, will still have some clay on them and in them. And so we're told that humans were created to go out into the world and find these broken shards and redeem the divine sparks, the light within them. So let those sparks shine again. In this act of, you might know these words, by the way, this act of finding the broken pieces and redeeming the divine light within them is called tikkun olam, the repair of the world. Uh, tikkun olam. Uh, by the way, if you go to tikkunolam.com, it's a weed dispensary, evidently. So, you know, <laughs> go and repair your world. Tikkunolam.com is, is a weed dispensary out in yeah, California. I did not. <laughs> I don't remember whether it's 2Ks or 1K, but one of them is a weed dispensary. Yep. Um, so all of this is to say that there are Jews who believe in reincarnation because they believe that every soul was created with a specific task of a specific piece of brokenness to go out and find and fix and repair. And if we live our lives as if we, the universe was made for us, then our souls, our potential, gets sent back again and again and again until we get it through our skulls that actually we're here to do this work. Um, that's personally the closest I get to an answer of hope. Uh, but I really like, speaking of the work that we are here to do, there's, I really, I think there's nothing that I've ever done, ever, 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 that feels as powerful as this camp that we created last year. Uh, so I've been to Jeff City, my God, I don't know, 30 times in the last few years. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, I was talking to a reporter today and they wanted dates because they were going to go back and try to find my old testimony. And so I just opened up my Google Photos and typed in Jefferson City and it was so many different days. Um, 
and right, like we've, we've, we've talked about how this is brutal and we've talked about this is hard and we've talked about how it breaks you. Um, and so we were sitting in Jeff City, uh, lifelong friend, Shira Berkowitz and myself, and realized we needed someplace that was an image of the way that the world could be, not an image of the way that the world is. Like sometimes that's all it can be. It can be that, right, like in a time of darkness, it can be that light onto the nations, if we're gonna borrow uh, Isaiah here for a moment. And so we decided, Shira and I were camp friends. I mean, like I have all sorts of embarrassing pictures of them. Anyone who knows Shira, I'm happy to pass on as many embarrassing pictures as you'd like of Shira. Uh, and we said, hey, let's do a camp. At that point, we were gonna do it for uh, trans kids and their siblings. And we said, and their siblings, because we thought we would need to include siblings in order to have a critical mass for camp. And we were really hopeful that if we put some work into it, we would get 20 kids from around the St. Louis area. We could get together in our first year. And we had to go out and count the bunks to discover that we had 97 spots for kids because that's how many kids we could hold at camp. We had 60 kids on the wait list. Um, this was last year and we just like invented it last year. We had kids come from 27 states. We had someone come from Alaska. Uh, we did not open it up to siblings. It was just transgender expansive and LGBTQ youth second through 11th grades. Right now, right now, like which way is east? That way? Yeah, I think that's that way. That's the way towards freedom, by the way, um, Illinois. Uh, when you have a trans kid, that's more real than it sounds, or when you're trans. Um, there are 150 kids from 30 states who are at camp right now, and every single one of them is transgender, expansive, or LGBTQ. Every single one of our 55 staff members, their counselors, are transgender, expansive, LGBTQ, which is to say, that there are 150 kids right now who in most of their lives are the only in their classroom or the only in their school or they live in a world where their teachers and their principals aren't their protectors but are their biggest bullies and they're in a space where everyone around them is like them. <laughs> so the most miraculous place at camp, I mean there's lots of miraculous places at camp, um, but it's swim dock or the pool. Uh, talk to trans folk, adult trans folk, and many will tell you that swimming is amongst the most anxiety producing moments. Yeah, I think we can all probably understand why that is, right? About a third of our campers last year came with notes saying they would not swim. Would not swim. We're afraid. Every camper went swimming last year because you live in a world where even the idea of putting on a bathing suit and going to a pool fills you with anxiety until you look around and you see that everyone, from your campers to your counselors to the lifeguard sitting on the chair, is like you. Um, so I really like, I, I, I think it's the best thing I've ever been a part of. I, uh, I feel like maybe in a deep way, this is why my soul was created for something like this. Um, so it's a magical place. And I, I like, in the deepest parts of my heart, I, I don't even just believe it. Like I, I know that there are going to be adults who will be thriving human beings who otherwise would not be alive because they have these weeks. Last year it was one week, 97 campers for 97 camper weeks. 
I, it was wild, I know, right? Um, and this year we have 150 campers for two weeks, which is to say we have 300 camper weeks uh, this year. We're very hopeful we'd like to uh, raise enough money that we can hire an executive director. We'd like to be a four-week camp uh, with a one-week, a two-week, and a four-week option. Uh, we raised $110,000 in small donations this year. Uh, would love for your community, I don't think I've hit you up yet, have I? Yeah, and the, but keep going. We call them Faith Partners of Indigo Point, which is to say that one day I said, hey, I bet I could, like, in exchange for listing their names on the website, get a whole bunch of synagogues to give me money, <laughs> which has worked remarkably well. I've raised, like, $10,000, $15,000 doing nothing but guilting my rabbi friends into making donations <laughs> in order to have their names listed on there. And we have a couple of churches who are not so... LGBTQ friendly, but want to be, and in particular want folks to think that they are, and we are really happy to take their money. Like, we are <laughs> really happy. Whatever guilt that they may have, like, pay, uh, indulgences, is that what it was called in the Catholic Church? Yeah, yeah. Like, or reparations. Repara whatever it is, <laughs> just like, um, bring it on. So we, anyways, we have a program, it's called Faith Partners of Camp Indigo Point. Uh, we ask for an $1,800 donation from an organization that we are not sticklers around the particular dollar amount um, and we list you on our website and you said 1500 1800 uh, it's a Jewish number I need to get a vestry vote for that and number, I don't we'll do it I don't mean to suggest anything but I have like 10 synagogues in one church I by the way the hold on I asked for asking for anyway. as long as we're on these topics and we've we've sort of moved topics did people see the PRRI public religion public relation religion Institute whatever it is PRRI um, that does public polling on uh, uh, religion and contemporary events in America. They have a new study out on acceptance of trans folk by generations and political parties, but also by religious affiliation. Has anyone seen this? American Jews, the most affirming of trans people of any group you can measure in the United States. You, you look at us and we are more affirming than people who aren't a part of a religious movement at all. Um, so I like just to brag from I'm very proud of the way that the American Jewish community has uh, stood up uh, and a I would say that 90% of our scholarships last year for camp were paid for by rabbis uh, we are not a Jewish camp we are not like there's nothing Jewish about this camp other than all of the values um, we gave out no 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 right like it's yeah uh, we gave out $40,000 in scholarships this year the process if a family uh, requests a scholarship is there's no process. They tell us what they can pay. And if it's a number that's low enough, we ask them if they need money to fly their kid in. Most of these kids are coming from out of state. Uh, so we've given out for, for uh, 150 campers. Anyone send their kids to sleepaway camp? So we were supposed to send our kids. We're going to go work at the sleepaway camp and instead because it was so expensive. It's like. $1,600 a week, $1,700 a week to send a kid to sleepaway camp. To send our three kids to regular Camp Sabra, Jewish sleepaway camp here in Missouri in the Ozarks for a month, which is like the standard amount, was going to be seventeen grand. Like, who can pay these things, right? We are half that price per week. So most camps are about $2,800 for a two-week camp. We're at $1,400 for a two-week camp, specifically because we wanted to make sure that there was no one who looked at the price, and even though it said all over scholarships, 
that they didn't look at that and say, you know what, even with the scholarship, I can't afford that. We didn't want anyone to walk away from that. Um, so even at $1,400, again, half the price, um, we are still giving out $40,000 in scholarships. We are gonna spend about $35,000 on staff costs, and we're gonna spend about $25,000 on armed security to constantly be circling the camp. Um, the Jewish community has a full-time security liaison, Scott Biondo, God love him, who's a former spook, who's also just like a sweetheart of a human being. I'm seeing some nods, do you know Scott? Is that, no. Um, I think, unfortunately, Scott probably spends like 15% of his time on me. Uh, us too, but yeah. I have Daniel too. And uh, he's arranged all this and worked on all of it. And uh, But there's a significant security presence and perimeter and all sorts of things that you don't even see. Because we know we're targets, right? Um, yeah. So that's our budget. That's you can Camp go Indigo to campendigoatpoint.org. Yeah. Um, or come to the Pride service on the 25th. Uh, the interfaith service of Pride, 10 a.m., down at the main stage of Pride. Uh, Daniel will be there with Shira uh, because there are uh, donation plates. Uh, the interfaith community said, let's make Camp Indigo Point uh, the place that we ask people to donate to at the Pride service. So there will be a QR code, which I need, by the way, because uh, we're printing bulletins. But 10 a.m. at the main stage for Pride for that, or just go to Camp Indigo Point and make a donation today. Help me thank uh, Rabbi Daniel Bogart. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.